So uh, we've heard this verse a few times here. For whatsoever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Heard that a few times, right? So that's telling us, you know, the Old Testament, he's talking about the Old Testament there. There's things that are written there that will give us encouragement in our walk with the Lord. And I suppose at least half, I don't know the exact amount, if not more, of the Old Testament is what's written in what they call narrative form. In other words, it's stories. And I think what that does is it helps our feeble minds understand abstract theological concepts. And what I mean by that is, take the doctrine of election. So when Paul wants to explain it in Romans 9, what does he do? He goes back to Jacob and Esau, doesn't he? And he says, quotes out of there, out of Genesis, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. And so we can help, he helps us to understand what that means. He said, God said that before either one of them was born or had done evil or good. Well, you got a story like that and a, Something concrete that you can look at, it helps you understand it. Or if you want to understand the sovereignty of God and the responsibility that we have as men, it couldn't be explained any clearer, I don't think, than in the story of Joseph that we have in Genesis and his brothers. So, you know, his brothers wickedly sold him into slavery and he has to go into prison and eventually is is raised up to be second in command to Pharaoh. And here's what he told his brothers. He said, God sent me before you to, per- to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. So there we see God was in control, right? And then later on, when their dad was going to die and these guys are like, well, he's been nice to us now. That's just because dad's around. But as soon as he dies, he's going to take vengeance on us and kill us. And Joseph told him then, listen, he says, fear not, for am I in the place of God? He said, but as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. And right there through that story, we can easily see, right? We may not understand it, but we can see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. So you thought evil. They're responsible for their actions, but God meant it for good. He was in control the whole time, right? So as they say, put that in your proverbial pipe and smoke it. Hopefully you don't have a real pipe, is what I meant by proverbial. So, but, you know, what about faith? So we hear a lot about faith here, but that's kind of a rather abstract concept, you know, to try to understand. And we need a little bit of help with that. So the Old Testament has many, doesn't it, many illustrations of, of faith that give us windows to our minds and hearts to help us understand it, right? So Hebrews 11 refers to many of those. It talks in Hebrews 11, refers back to Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Rahab, and it says there's others. I just don't have the space to get into all of it, right? So tonight, I'd like to look at a king that had a faith that was a cut above all the others. So if you would... Turn to 2 Kings 18. I think if we look at this man's life, we'll see it'll help us to understand faith in a certain way. 2 Kings chapter 18. Now, uh, I got good news and bad news. Uh, 
I tease these guys at prison all the time because I'll tell them, you know, hey, I only had you turn to like two scriptures tonight. That's and you know they like that because sometimes I'll have them turn to ten. So look, we're not going to be turning to a lot of places. In fact, only two. But we're going to be reading a whole lot in those two. So <laughs> if you didn't do your daily devotional, believe me, you'll get it in tonight. So if you, if well, we're going to go from Kings and then we're going to go over to Chronicles here shortly. So if you want to put something in Kings when we do that, we'll be reading in Second Kings eighteen. In Second Chronicles, but we'll read starting Second Kings 18, starting in verse one. It says, "Now it came to pass in the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty-five years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah." And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. He removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break it in peace and break in pieces the brazen serpent, serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it and called it Nehushtan. Verse 5, it says, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave to the Lord, and departed not from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him, and he prospered whithersoever he went forth. I've kind of given it away, but what was the characteristic that Hezekiah had that it says no other king, now this is quite a, no other king before him or after him. What was the characteristic he had? Faith, right? His trust in God. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, he trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that, that trust so that after him, because he, his faith was such that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. No king before or after had his faith. And we've heard here, what about Asa? I mean, that's a lot of faith there, isn't it? He's got a million man army from Ethiopia coming against him. And he saw God's deliverance through that. Or what about his son Jehoshaphat? We've heard that story here, right? The multitude from Ammon and Moab coming after him. More than you could count. And they didn't raise a single arm against him, didn't they? They, they trusted in the word of a prophet and saying, and it says Hezekiah's faith was greater than that. Or even what about King David? I mean, that's something to say you had greater faith than him. And that's what God said about Hezekiah, didn't he? David slew and Goliath, and yet it says Hezekiah's faith was greater than that. And look, in verse 6, it gives us more of a reason, insight into why. Why? Because he clave to the Lord. And what's that word clave mean? That's where it says a man's going to leave his mother, father. Him and his wife are going to cleave together. See, he stuck to God in trust and didn't turn anywhere else. Stuck to him like glue. It's saying he clave to the Lord and also he departed not from following him. That's important too. We'll see. But he kept his commandments, which the Lord commanded Moses. And listen, what we're going to look at tonight, there is one major event in Hezekiah's reign that the Bible sets forth to demonstrate his great faith. And that is the threat of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. 
Now listen, that story is told three times in detail, three times in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Second Kings, Second Chronicles, and it's stuck right in the middle of Isaiah. Now how many, you think about it, how many things are repeated in detail, a narrative story, three times anywhere in the Bible? Very few. I, I, don't, I didn't try to think. I can't think of any right off the top of my head. So what does that tell us? That tells us this is something we can give attention to, shouldn't we? I, I think it's one of my favorite stories, actually. So in this narrative of Sennach, or, uh, Hezekiah, I'm sorry, I think there's three principles that I want to look at tonight that I think are crucial to faith that are set forth. So if you'll turn, put something there in, in Second Kings, we'll go back to that. This first principle, we're going to look at all of it in Second Chronicles, if you turn over to Second Chronicles 28. Now, the thing, um, the difference between the chronicle account of Hezekiah is it's got some things that happened before Sennacherib came in detail. Because last time we talked about the temple, Chronicles is on temple worship and restoring temple worship and the importance of it. And we kind of need to keep that in mind. So this first thing I want to look at here is the first point is the level of your consecration will determine the level of your faith. And so by consecration, I mean, it means to consecrate means to devote your life to a purpose with a deep dedication. Devote your life to a purpose with a deep dedication. And I would say, for most people in here, that is the way we have all begun our Christian walk. Would anyone say that when they came to the Lord, they just didn't pray, I give you my whole life and heart, I'm devoted to you, that's the way I'm going to live? It's all for Jesus, though none go with me. I mean, that's the way most start start off. Turn from sin, follow him, pray every day, read his word, that's the way it starts. But once you'll see, once you start moving your life away from devoting your life to that deep dedication to God, your faith will suffer. So Hezekiah's father, who we're going to look at first, gives us a contrast to his consecration. We're going to look at Hezekiah's consecration by his dad's desecration. It's two cases, and I think sometimes the Lord works these things out. So you're going to have back-to-back polar opposites. We're going to see what it means not to be consecrated to the Lord by his dad. Then we're going to look at how Hezekiah consecrated his life. So sometimes you can understand something better by looking at its opposite in the effects than the thing itself. But we'll look at both tonight, right? So the kings of Judah, they were all called to follow. It talks about David, their father. And he was born generations before a lot of them. But the ones that did right, it said they followed in the steps of their father, David, by wholly following the Lord because he was a man after God's own heart, it says. And that's what they were called to do, weren't they? Well, let's look here. You're in Second, Second Chronicles 28. Beginning in verse 1, this is Ezekiah's dad. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And it says he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, but he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord like David his father. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, which there was not a good one of them. Ways of the kings of Israel and made also molten images for Balaam. Moreover, he burnt incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom, 
and burnt his children in the fire after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. He sacrificed also and burnt incense in the high places and upon the hills and under every green tree. Wherefore, the Lord his God delivered him into the hand of the king of Syria. And they smote him and carried away a great multitude of them captives and brought them to Damascus, which is very far north of Israel. And he was also, though, delivered into the hand of the king of Israel, who smote him with a great slaughter. Stop reading. I'm going to ask you all, I know the temptation is to keep reading, because I've been where you've been out there. But if you could just stop when we stop, and you can read it all later tomorrow, right on through. We're not going to read it all through, or we really would be here for about three hours. So I'll have mercy on you that much. But here's the thing. What what we have happening here is because of this man has gone into sin, he's not following the Lord. He's offering incense on altars and taking his kids through the fire. God has sent a coalition of Israel, the north, is coming on the king of Judah. And you also have the king of Syria coming. And it says they slaughtered a bunch of them and took a bunch of them captive. So what we have here in the next few verses is Israel takes a bunch of people from Judah captive, takes them up north. They're naked. They plundered them. And God says, wait a minute, y'all. I'm going to tell you through a prophet. He says, they get back up here. I'm going to tell you what. I let you do that because I wanted to punish Judah. But listen, y'all got some skeletons in your own closets. You've got a lot of sins because, listen, they're going to very soon be judged big time themselves. He says, you're adding sin to your sin. You need to send those people back home. And that's what they did. They put clothes on them, gave them back their provision, and sent them to Jericho. But that wasn't the end of King Ahaz's problems. So look here, look in verse starting back down in 16. And at that time, so the people have come back to Jericho from the Israelites, but now they're going to get attacked from the south. And at that time, did King Ahaz send unto the kings of Assyria to help him? Well, who should he have been looking to for help? He's the king of Judah. He should have been looking to the Lord, shouldn't he? But he's not. And here's why. For again, the Edomites had come and smitten Judah and carried away captives. The Philistines also had invaded. So we got the Edomites from the south. The Philistines from over on the coast have invaded the cities of the low country and in the south of Judah and have taken Beth Shemesh and Ajahan and Gedaroth, and Soko with the villages thereof, and Timnah with the villages thereof, Gimzo also in the villages thereof, and they dwelt there. For the Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he made Judah naked and transgressed sore against the Lord. And Tilgath-Pilneser, king of Assyria, came unto him and distressed him. The one he asked for help, did he help him? It says, but strengthened him not, because he taxed him so heavy, he was taking all his money away. For Ahaz took away a portion out of the house of the Lord, and out of the house of the king and of the princes, and gave it unto the king of Assyria, but he helped him not. And in the time of his distress, did he trespass yet more against the Lord. And look what it says. This is that king Ahaz. He is not spoken of well, is he? The treacherous king Ahaz. Verse 23, for he sacrificed unto the gods of Damascus who smote him. And he said, because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, 
Therefore will I sacrifice to them that they may help me. That's crazy. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And because he sacrificed to those gods, that's why he had no faith. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God and shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. And he made him altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every several city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense unto other gods and provoked to anger the Lord God of his fathers. What does it say there in verse 24 that he did right there in the middle? He shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. So he literally and figuratively had shut his heart to God and worshiped to him, hadn't he? And shut up the doors. And what is a king doing when he does that? He's just not shutting out God's presence and blessing in his own life. He's shutting it out to who else? All the people that he's over, all of Israel, to shut the doors to the temple. He wasn't consecrated to God, and it said he desecrated the holy city, made altars everywhere to sacrifice to these foreign gods. But who was he consecrated to? Because he was. Three times we read that he burnt incense to other gods. Burnt incense. You're like, well, what's the big deal about burning incense? Listen, in this Bible dictionary, I have it. Hey, a good definition of what's going on when you burn incense. One offers incense in reverence to a being to whom all of one's allegiance is pledged because one depends on that being for substance and survival and one wants to garner the favor of that being. So when he's doing that, he's doing what? The king of Israel. He's saying, I'm not pledging allegiance. I've shut the doors to the temple but I'm offering incense and pledging my allegiance and looking to these gods of Damascus. Because he's saying, those gods helped them defeat me. Maybe they'll help me too. And it said it was the ruin of him. That's where his consecration was. And all throughout the Old and New Testament, what did incense, the altar of incense, represent? The prayers of the saints. Isn't that the way you keep your dedication to God up is through your prayer life? For instance, Psalm 141, David wrote, Lord, I cry unto thee. Remember, we're saying, where you offer your incense, that's who you're going to cry to. He says, I cry unto you, make haste unto me, give ear unto my voice when I cry unto thee. Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense. And the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. So wouldn't you say, based on what we read so far, that whom you offer your dedication, your consecration, whom you offer your incense to, that's who you're going to seek your help from, isn't it? Because that's what he did. And when your consecration is not given to the Lord, yours, mine, anyone's, what happens? You have no faith. No faith in God. Because Ahaz sure didn't, did he? So now we're going to get to compare what it should be like. On the bright side, maybe we can get some smiles at people tonight. So so we move on down here to chapter 29. We'll read the first 11 verses here. In contrast to his father Ahaz, look what Hezekiah does. And it says, Hezekiah began to reign when he was five and twenty years old. Oh, I'm sorry. 
And he reigned nine and twenty years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. Just the opposite of his father, he has. And he, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. And he brought in the priest and the Levites and gathered them together into the east street and said unto them, Hear, hear me, ye Levites, sanctify now yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. For our fathers have trespassed and done that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. Also, they have shut up the doors of the porch, put out the lamps and have not burned incense nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place unto the God of Israel. Wherefore, the wrath of the Lord is upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has delivered them to trouble, to astonishment, and to hissing, as you see with your eyes. For, lo, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. But now it is in mine heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel." that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, be not now negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister unto him and do what? Burn incense. So verse 3, what is the first thing Hezekiah does? His dad had shut his heart, had shut the doors to the temple. And listen, they had back then what was known as a co-regency. A lot of these kings, they would reign when they were young. They'd reign a few years with their fathers. So that that way they'd kind of know how things operate. So you'd have these overlaps. That doesn't always talk about it here, but we know they know from doing all the time chronologies that that had to take place for everything to work out. And so he had a slight overlap with his father. And he had sit there and seen his father. And how he desecrated the Lord's house. And it's almost like Hezekiah said, I have had enough of this. I'm not waiting. He gets in there and what does it say? Verse 3. The first year of his reign in the first month, he opened up his heart, opened up the doors of the Lord and repaired them. Because what was the condition of the temple at the time of Ahaz and Judah before this? Look in verse 7. Look what it says. He says, we got to get things right because they, my father and the people, have shut up the doors of the porch and have put out the lamps and have not burned incense nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place unto the Lord God of Israel. You know what they had done? They had made the temple like it's nobody's home. No one's here. The lights are out. No lights. No fire. The doors are shut. And that was the condition of their heart at the time. They'd shut out the Lord altogether. But it says, verse 10, that Hezekiah had it in his heart. It is in mine heart, he says, to make a covenant. He's wanting to consecrate himself wholly to the Lord, isn't he? He said, I want to make a covenant with the Lord God to get things the way they should be. And what's the first thing you're going to do? If you haven't had that relationship with the Lord and you know your heart's been shut out to him, what's the first thing you're going to do is the first thing 
Hezekiah did. You're going to remove all filth and idolatry, right? Because look what we have in verse 5. He said to them, to the priest, Hear me, ye Levites, sanctify yourselves, sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers, and carry forth the filthiness out of this holy place. And that's what they did. And that's what we sometimes need to do, don't we? We realize, man, we have not been living like we should. We've been letting things in that shouldn't be there. And it's affecting things between us and the Lord. And look in verse 16. So it says, The priest went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it. And it says, They brought out all the uncleanness that they found in the temple of the Lord and in the court of the house of the Lord. Ah, they had to get things right because they hadn't been right, right? And it said it took them 16 days to cleanse that temple. 16 days. And after 16 days when they were done, they came back to Hezekiah and they told him, they said, Hezekiah, we have cleaned the temple, the altar, the showbread table, and all the vessels. It, if you read the account, it says Ahaz would just look at these vessels that were dedicated to the service of the Lord and just throwing them away, just breaking them, using them for whatever, could have cared less. They said, we've restored all that. We've cleaned it up. We've got things back in order for you. And Hezekiah and all the rulers of Jerusalem then, they said, we're going to bring sacrifices and we're going to restore worship the way it should be in the temple. And so look in verse 21. It says, and they brought, so here's what Hezekiah and the leaders brought. They brought seven bullocks seven rams and seven lambs and seven he-goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, not just for Jerusalem, but for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they killed the bullocks, and the priest received the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Likewise, when they had killed the rams, they sprinkled the blood upon the altar. They killed also the lambs, and they sprinkled the blood upon the altar. And they brought forth the he-goats for the sin offering before the king and the congregation, and they laid their hands upon them. And the priests killed them. And they made reconciliation with their blood upon the altar to make an atonement for all of Israel. For the king commanded the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all of Israel. Now look, I'll tell you what he's getting ready to do. He brings in the priests, the singers, with all their instruments and all that. And he sets them up. And he says, look, boys, I want you to be right there. Get the trumpets to your lips. Get ready to sing. Because when I point, I want the keyboard band to start playing. I want the band to strike up the band. Because this is going to be a great moment. So that's what we have here in verse 25. It says, he set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with psalteries, and with harps, according to the commandment of David. And of Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan, the prophet. For so was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. And the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priest with the trumpets. And they're just standing and waiting to see what's getting that signal. And look what happens here in verse 27. It said, And Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering upon the altar. The burnt offering re represented total dedication to God. And this is for all the people. And look what happens here. And when the burnt offering began, Hezekiah pointed. 
boom. And it says, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets, with the instruments ordained by David, king of Israel. And so that offering's happening. They're offering that sacrifice. And joy and praise is going up at the same time. Praise God. They have got worship and their consecration back with God. And it says in verse 28, And all the congregation worshipped, and the singer sang, and the trumpeter sounded, and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. I don't like to see that. I don't know if anyone else would, but I sure would. And when they had made an end of offering, the, the king and all that were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. Moreover, Hezekiah the king and the princes commanded the Levites to sing praises unto the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness and bowed their heads and worshipped. And Hezekiah answered and said, Now ye have what? Consecrated yourselves unto the Lord. Come near and bring sacrifices and thank offerings unto the house of the Lord. And the congregation brought in sacrifice and thanks offerings, and as many as were of a free heart burnt offerings. It's a joyous time. A temple's cleansed. The, the doors have been opened. Just the opposite of Ahaz, isn't it? And there's rejoicing that's taken place because they've consecrated themselves to God. And look down at verse 35. And also the burnt offerings were in abundance with the fat of the peace offering and the drink offerings for every burnt offering. So the service of the house of the Lord was set in order. Everything's back the way it should be. Their consecration, their dedication, the way the temple was supposed to operate. And Hezekiah rejoiced, and all the people that God had prepared the people for the thing was done suddenly. And so it goes on to say that's got the temple cleansed and in order, and they're back to offering the offerings that they were supposed to be doing all along, the sin offering, the burnt offering. Things are right between them and God. And then it says that Hezekiah determined that he is going to now keep the Passover, which they hadn't been doing. And he wants all of Israel. Now, the kingdom had been divided. You had Judah to the south and the tribes to the north. They didn't have anything to do with each other. But Hezekiah is like, I want to have a whole nation brought down there, which they should have been doing all along. By this time, they've been carried away into captivity, but there's still some people up north. And anyone that's willing, he wants them to come and observe the Passover. So if you turn over there, verse chapter 30 and verses 5 and 6, it said, They established the king and all the congregation, Hezekiah, verse 4. Verse 5, they established a decree to make proclamation throughout all Israel, from Beersheba even to Dan, that they should come to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, they had not done it for a long time in such sort as it was written. So the post went with the letters from the king and his princes throughout Israel and Judah, and according to the commandment of the king, saying, You children of Israel, turn again unto the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and he will return to the remnant of you. He just sent them into captivity with big destruction from Assyria. But he says, yet the ones that are left, if you'll turn to the Lord God with all your heart, this is God's heart. He says, he'll return back to you. You don't have to fear. You that are escaped out of the hands of the king of Assyria. 
And so that's what happened down in verse 10. It says, so the post, he sends these people out. They pass from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, even unto Zebulon. But some of them, this is the heart they had for God. They laughed them to scorn and mocked them. Nevertheless, verse 11, many of them of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun, these are all part of the northern tribes, humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Also in Judah, the hand of God was to give them one heart to do the commandment of the king and of the princes by the word of the Lord. And that's a key there. The hand of God was in it all. It's always got to be the hand of God that moves the people. Whether it's revival, we don't control when his spirit falls. We can pray for it and hope for it, right, and believe for it. But it's the hand of God that has to be on people to cause this to happen, to cause their hearts to be turned. And so look in verse 24 and 27. It says, For Hezekiah, king of Judah, did give to the congregation. He supplies what they need to keep this Passover. A thousand bullocks, seven thousand sheep, and the princes gave to the congregation a thousand bullocks and ten thousand sheep, and a great number of priests sanctified themselves. And all the congregation of Judah with the priests and the Levites and all the congregation that came out of Israel and the strangers that came out of the land of Israel and that dwelt in Judah rejoiced so that there was great joy in Jerusalem. For since the time of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there was not like in Jerusalem. Then the priest arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his dwelling place, even where? Unto heaven, it says. Would you think that was happening? Here, the priest, it says, they blessed the people. May God's face shine upon you. They prayed over the people. And God now, instead of turning his face and having anger towards the nation, it says what? That prayer ascended unto heaven. I think his favor rested on those people at this point, don't you? And why? Because they've got things right. They've cleaned all the filth out. They've got their priorities straight. They're back to burning incense to the Lord. Their prayer life's gotten right. And so sum it up, you go over to 31 verse 20, it says, And thus did Hezekiah throughout all Judah, and that, and wrought that which was good and right and truth before the Lord his God, and in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, and in the law, and in the commandments to seek his God, he did it how? With all his heart, it says, and prospered. So let me ask you all a question. Would you say at this point in the story that Hezekiah kind of an obvious answer and all the people are right with God (laughs) I mean I would say they are would you say that now just the opposite of what we read in chapter 28 about his father they have their hearts and lives consecrated to the Lord at this point so I would ask you this question what about your heart and life where is your consecration at Where is your altar of incense burning? Do you seek the Lord in prayer? What about reading his word with the idea that we're going to change and and live it? And what about, you know, sometimes we need to make sure that, hey, we've done wrong. We need to admit our sins and go to God and confess our sins, right? It's not some automatic thing. Read 1 John. 
If you say you have no sin, he says you're deceived. But, he says, if we'll confess our sins, then he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what if you're not confessing them? What do you think is not that big a deal? It is a big deal. It's not automatic. So I'd say, where is your heart? Are you more aligned with Ahaz or with Hezekiah or somewhere in between? Because where your consecration is, your dedication, it's going to determine your level of faith and what you put it in. Or who you put it in, I should say, really. Where we place it. So listen, cleansing the temple of uncleanness to allow faith and healing to flow is a New Testament principle. Do you all know that? It's not just in the Old Testament. And one good place to see this is Matthew 21. But Jesus is on, you don't have to turn there. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to die. And it says he went in that temple. It says, and Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that had sold doves. And he said unto them, things aren't going to work the way this place is being operated now. There's too much uncleanness in here. And this is what he said. It is written, my house shall be called what? A house of incense. Isn't that what we've been seeing here? That's a house of prayer. Goes into the temple. What are we? We are the temple, aren't we? And he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Get rid of everything else that's unclean. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Same thing that was going on in Ahaz's day. And guess what? After he cleansed that temple of those people, you go read Matthew 21, and it says this. As soon as that happened, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Is there something for us to learn there? (laughs) I think so. Because like I said... We are the temple of the Holy Spirit, corporately and individually, aren't we? So is it possible, I'm just saying, is it possible that a lack of consecration and dedication has stopped up that flow of healing? What about our altars, our altars of incense? Well, look, we look let's look on and we'll see clearly, clearly see that consecration produces faith. So, go to chapter 32, verses 1 to 3. Look what it says here. They've done all this. God's prospered Hezekiah. He's got the temple restored. And look what it says. And after these things and the establishment thereof, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah and encamped against the fenced cities and thought to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was come and he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem... He took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains which were without the city, and they did help him. He sees, he sees this, it says a mighty host came. He's got a huge army coming against him. But here, let's look down and we'll see what consecration will do for a people and a king. Look what it says in verse 6. He gets things in order. In verse 6 it says, He set captains of war over the people and gathered them together to him in the street of the gate of the city. And it says, He spake comfortably to them. That means he spoke encouraging words to these people. Troubles at the doorstep. 
spake comfortably to them, saying, Verse 7, Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of, of the king of Syria, nor for all the multitude that is with him, for there be more with us than with him. Can I get an amen? That's the way it is. Because he says, verse 8, with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us. Always got a multitude when he's on your side. Nobody's going to outnumber God, right? And to fight our battles. And look, in verse 8 it says, And the people rested themselves upon the words of King Hezekiah. Look at that reaction they have there. These people now, they are consecrated to the Lord, aren't they? We, we just showed that. And what's their reaction? It says they rested themselves upon the words of the king. You know what that rested means? It means that something you're able to support or brace yourself. So they see trouble is coming. I mean, big trouble's coming, right? And he speaks to them. He says, fear not. We've given ourselves to God. You can trust him. He is greater than all this host that's coming. We were, and it says they could brace themselves on that. They see the storms coming. It doesn't matter. They can rely on those words of God. Isn't that what we can do? When you know you've got your life consecrated to the Lord, it doesn't matter. Trouble's going to come. We live in a world of trouble. Are we promised tribulation and affliction? We are promised it. How are we going to overcome that? Especially in the last days when it gets worse. We've got to be consecrated so we can grab hold of the words of God, however it comes to us, right? Whether it's a king, a prophet, the Bible, a, a brother or sister. And we can brace ourselves for, and we can, it'll work. It will. But that's what it said they did. Verse 8, those people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah. Because listen, here's the thing. When you're righteous, you can have faith. You can. And when you're not, you're going to be in big trouble. Because listen, Proverbs 28.1 tells us that. The wicked flee. The wicked flee when no man is even pursuing them. What does it say? But the righteous are what? Bold as a lion. So what's the key? The wicked flee when there's not even anybody coming after them. They're running away. Right? That's the difference between the two. So righteousness, a life consecrated to God, we're saying, produces faith and is able to rest on his word like we just read these people do, did. They can rest on his word. They're not going to flee when trouble comes like the wicked will. Because I really believe this is true. I believe what we think are faith problems are really more sin problems than we care to admit. Because this is a fact. You ask people why they don't witness to people, why they don't share their faith with people, and they'll say, I'm afraid. But you know what the number one reason really is? They got sin in their lives. That's why. It's not because you can overcome fear if you're dedicated to the Lord. That's the reason people don't witness. It's sin. It's not fear. Sin produces fear. So we look at the contrast we just looked at with Ahaz and his son Hezekiah. Ahaz wasn't consecrated to God at all, was he? Offering incense in all the wrong places, putting his dedication. And when trouble came, what happened to him? Where did he seek his help from? The Lord? Couldn't. He didn't know the Lord. 
He had to seek it from other idols, the idols of, of Syria. And it said they, they were his downfall, not his help. But Hezekiah and brought the people sold out to God alone. And what happens when trouble comes to them? They're staring right at it, big time trouble. What do they do? Where's their trust? It's in the Lord, isn't it? So that brings me to my second point. You're like, man, it's about time. What time is it? 8.20. So now let's go back to 2 Kings 18. And the second thing I want us to say is that when you take a stand, the second principle, when you do take a stand, you're consecrated, you take a stand, you will be challenged. And sometimes you're going to be challenged, we'll see, severely. So we've already read in the Chronicles account that Sennacherib has come into Judah and he's ready to take it. And Hezekiah. And look down there in verse 13, 2 Kings 18, 13. It says, Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah. So he took the outlying cities, but he hasn't taken Jerusalem. So things don't look too good. He's already knocked off their little outside fortification cities. But he hasn't taken Jerusalem yet. And then look over in verse 17. Now here's what he does. He sends a little envoy out to talk to Hezekiah. And the king of Assyria, which is Sennacherib, sent Tartan, Rabsaris, and Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah with a great host. Sends these three guys with a great army against Jerusalem. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they were come up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is in the highway of the fuller's field. And when they had called to the king, there came out to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, which was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. So they got their three guys, and Hezekiah sends out his three spokesmen. Verse 19, And Rabshakeh sent unto them, Speak ye now to Hezekiah, Thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein you trust? You say, but they are but vain words. I have counsel and strength for the war. Now on whom do you trust that thou rebellest against me? Now behold, thou trustest upon the staff of this bruised reed, even Egypt, on which if a man lean, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh king of Egypt unto all that trust on him. But if you say, we trust in the Lord our God. Well, is it not that he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and has said to Judah and Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now, therefore, I pray thee, give pledges to my Lord, the king of Assyria, and I'll deliver thee 2,000 horses if you're able on thy part to set riders upon them. How then will you turn away the face of one captain of the least of my master's servants and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Am I now come up without the Lord against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this place and destroy it. Now listen, isn't that the way trials are? The devil comes up and throws some daunting circumstances right in front of you. Whatever that host is, right? Major illness, Rebellious children, your marriage is breaking down, you got an emotional crisis, job loss, you got an anger problem, lust problem that you can't conquer, throws that up in front of you. And then what does he do as soon as he does that? Look in verse 19. He asked this question, verse 19. He, he will say then to you, Mr. Deeper Walk Christian, what is this confidence in wherein you trust? 
He's going to ask you that, isn't he? Here it is now. Here's his problem. And look in verse 20. And this is the title of the message, if you got to have a title. He says at the end of that verse, Now on whom do you trust? Isn't that what he asked you? Things are going along and all of a sudden the bottom falls out in some way, whatever your situation is. And that's the first thing the devil throws in your face. All right, Mr. Faith Walker, hearing all this word, everybody's watching you. Now on whom do you trust? And the emphasis is on now because we're saying, he's saying now the problem's here. This is no longer just some idea that, oh, yeah, when that happens, I'll trust the Lord. No, now it's on top of you. And who are you going to trust? A real problem's now right on top of you. Oh, yeah, we hear the verses. Surely he has carried our pains. Amen. But now it's hurting. You got pain on the inside. It's not going away. And there's the question. Now on whom are you going to trust? My God shall supply all your needs. Amen. And then winter comes, and then you're self-employed, and you haven't worked for two weeks, and you got real bills staring you in the face. And that's the devil saying, now on whom are you going to trust? Isn't that what he does? And you know what? It seems to me like that voice always comes at night. At least it does for me when I can't sleep. comes at night. And it's a dark time to deal with situations, isn't it? But that's the devil. Now, on whom do you trust? And he'll remind you that you got rid of everything, hopefully, that the world trusts in and that they'll say is from the Lord. You got rid of it all. Look in verse 22. That's what he tells him. But if you say unto me, well, we trust in the Lord our God, he says, is not that he whose high places, whose altars Hezekiah has taken away? He's saying that was the Lord, the world, those altars. And you're saying you're going to trust in the Lord? Well, Hezekiah just got rid of the Lord. Because he's saying, hey, the world's ways are the Lord. That's the Lord's in that, right? You trust in the Lord? Well, he would say, didn't the Lord give you banks and hospitals and medications and psychologists and alcohol and so on? And Brother Hamilton took it all away from you. Whom now on whom are you going to trust? You're going to trust in the Lord? He just got rid of the Lord for you. This faith message... That's what most Christians would tell you, wouldn't they? They would. And look at verse 25. He goes on to say, am I come up without the Lord? This problem? You don't think I'm from the Lord? This major problem that's on top of you right now? That's what he's saying. You think I'm come out without the Lord against this place to destroy? The Lord said to me, he's the one that sent me here. Go up to this land and destroy it. God sent me to you to destroy you. Tell me you don't have to battle that because that's the common teaching. God's brought this on you. You're cross to bear. You hear that everywhere. You can't avoid it. And if you're not careful what you listen to, it's going to be affecting your faith. God sent me to ruin your life, to kill you before your time, to keep you poor and miserable. You ever heard that? I'm your thorn in the flesh because poverty, cancer, broken homes, they keep you humble. Is that what God says? Look in verse 26. He goes on. It says, Then said Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah, under Rabshakeh, Speak, I pray thee, to thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it. Don't talk with us in the Jews' language in the ears of the people. He's saying, speak unto us in, in another the language that's the common language of 
politicians. Not the language that these people are going to, you're scaring them. And what is he, you think they're going to listen to that? But Rabshakeh said unto them, has my master sent me to thy master and to thee to speak these words? Has he not sent me to these men? The ones all standing on the wall listening? These are the guys that are going to suffer from your message, Hezekiah. Then he sent me to them which sit on the wall that they may eat their own dung and drink their own piss with you. Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in the Jews' language and spake, saying, Hear the word of the great king. He's making sure they all hear it now. The king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, Don't let Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord, saying, The Lord will surely deliver us, and this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. Hearken not to Hezekiah, for thus saith the king of Assyria, Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and then eat every man of his own vine, and every one of his own fig, and drink you every one the waters of his cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land. Isn't that what they told the Germans told the Jews before they killed them? That's, that's about how much I trust this guy. Make an agreement with me. As you meet every man his own vine, his own fig, drink his own waters of his own cisterns until I come take you to a land like your own land, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive oil and of honey, that you may live and not die and hearken not unto Hezekiah when he persuadeth you, saying, The Lord will deliver you. He's saying, verse 29, he's telling them, Don't let some preacher deceive you into trusting the Lord. Don't let that happen. Don't let him tell you by trusting the Lord God's going to heal you, that God can actually deliver you from a spirit of lust, enable you to overcome anger, that you can receive the Holy Spirit, that you can have an assurance of your salvation. Don't, don't let some preacher tell you all that, that God's going to do that for you. He says, no, verse 31, he says, no, man, make a deal with me. That's all I'm asking you to do. Trust me. The devil said, just trust, just do things my way and listen, everything's going to work out. Because really it's not as hard as they try to make it. God is all about grace and forgiveness. So all you have to do is say you're trusting in God, praying about it, and make an appointment with Marcus Welby, M.D. And that's probably before a lot of you guys' time. That's an old TV show. He's a doctor. Make an appointment with him. Just trust me and you'll feel better soon. Oh, yeah? I got a couple relatives that put their complete faith in doctors, and they things did not really work out real well. Or he might say, hey, you don't have to overcome anger. Just make a deal with me, man. Jesus was angry, and I think he made it to heaven, didn't he? That's what he'll tell you. You know, sometimes a little venting every now and then is healthy. You don't have to feel bad about that or try to overcome that or lust. you got to be kidding me. I mean, why, and you hear this, I've heard this in prison many times, that's why God made women so beautiful, not just for one guy to look on them, that's ridiculous. He made them beautiful for all of us to look on. You think he's going to send you to hell? And so, you know, the devil, seriously, like the king of Assyria, he will lie to you. He'll lie to you about compromise. Don't trust in the Lord. That's a bad way to go. Isn't that what he says? Convinced a lot of people of that. Try to get you to compromise him with things that sound logical, and he will make you pay. He's a liar. The father of all lies. And I'll tell you, you can think 
trusting in the Lord's no big deal for your healing and you didn't go that route. But it's more than just the physical part of it. What about the spiritual aspect of trusting in the Lord and seeing his faithfulness to you because you trusted him only and things did not look good with that great host coming? But I've dedicated my life, my body to you, Lord, and I'm looking to you only. And what do you think that does when that prayer is answered to you spiritually? It is a big increase to your faith and your love for the Lord versus the other way. you got to deal with all that other spiritually. And guess what? It makes it harder to get back over there to trust the Lord, doesn't it? It really does. Because here's the thing. Many times what the devil's going to tell you, just like the king of Assyria, it's true. Look at verses 33 to 35 here. He says, here's what he goes on to tell them. Don't, don't let that Hezekiah make a deal with me. And he goes on, has any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his hand out of the hand of the king of Assyria? And the answer is none of them had. Wiped them all out. He was, they were fierce people. They really were. Really something to be afraid of. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? And they hadn't. Who are they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of my hand? That the Lord is going to deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. What makes Israel, what gives you the right, you Christian, to think you're any different than anybody else out there in the world or any other Christian? That somehow God is going to come through for you. And who do you know that's been healed of a serious illness? He's saying, what country's ever been delivered out of my hand? Who's ever been healed of a serious illness? Name one person that really has had their character changed, truly set free. And isn't mental illness just something you have to live with and try to cope with? You're going to tell me God will really deliver you from spirits? Yes, he will. And whatever that situation that you're staring at that seems like it never changes for anyone that you've ever heard of or seen. And here's what we deal with this. Verse 36, but the people did what? They held their peace and answered him not a word. For the king's commandment was answer him not. Because listen, you can't reason with the devil. He will outreason you every single time. He's a lot smarter than you or me and the people he works through. <laughs> they can give some pretty convincing arguments. Best thing to do if someone's trying to talk you out of your faith is answer not a word and get away from them. It really is. But how do we deal with people trying to talk us out of our faith or thoughts from Satan? As I'll tell you, honestly, I think sometimes the challenge to our faith can be as severe and trying as the actual circumstances are. Is that not true? The mind battles, the people telling you what... All that, I could give you things I don't have time. So what should we do? Point number three. And we got through that one pretty quick, didn't we? Look over here in Second Kings 19. And that what we should do is go to God in prayer. And it came to pass when Hezekiah heard it. Here comes the report. He's seen it. What did he do? He rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went to the temple. That's the best thing to do. And he's got a life that's dedicated to the Lord. He can do that. And he sends, listen, he sends his top man. He says, I want you to go over to Isaiah the prophet. Boy, wouldn't you like to have him access to him for your problems? Go talk to him. Tell him what they said. 
Tell him their report and ask him what it is we're supposed to do. And Hezekiah, or Isaiah sends back word. He says this, Thus saith the Lord, don't be afraid. He says they're just words, blasphemous words. That's going to get that guy in trouble. Blasphemous words, but they're just words. He says, God says, thus saith the Lord, I'll take care of the king of Assyria. He'll return to his own land and die there. And so while Hezekiah is talking to Isaiah, old Rabshakeh has gone back to King Sennacherib and told him what's happened. Look, and these people are just looking at me. They're not surrendering. They're not doing anything. They're not answering. They're just staring at me. He tells them that, right? Gives his report. And Sennacherib sends an answer back. This time it comes by in the form of a letter to Hezekiah by messengers. Does he say anything different? It's the same old dribble when he gives back. He says, don't let God deceive you, Hezekiah. No other God has delivered his nation out of my hands. Just look at him. That's basically what he told him. That's basically what he told Hezekiah. And it says then, Hezekiah, that thing probably came rolled up like this in a scroll. Gets that letter. And it said Hezekiah took that thing, he read it, and he went into the temple. And he put that there right before the Lord. And unfolded this bad report, this evil report. It says God won't help you at all. And he lays it out. It says before the Lord. Look in verse 14 of chapter 19. It said Hezekiah received the letter of the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went unto the house of the Lord, and he spread it out before the Lord. And he prays. And here's what he prayed. It says, verse 15, he prayed before the Lord. And here's the first thing he says, O Lord God of Israel, which dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. And stop right there. What's the first thing he does in prayer? He's got a major trial coming in his way. What's the first thing he does? He acknowledges God's sovereignty, doesn't he? Over earth and nature. Because this king is trying to act like he's sovereign. And he's saying, God, you are the sovereign God over all the nations. And another thing that you could get by here, slip by without noticing it, he also recognizes that not only is he the God in the heavens, because isn't that how Jesus taught us to start our prayers? Our Father who where? Art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Isn't it? You acknowledge his greatness, his holiness. But here, he recognizes something else. It could almost get by you here. He recognizes that God is near. When you look in verse 15, he says, which dwellest between the cherubims. You know where that's at? The cherubims are right where he is on earth, in the temple. And that's where God's presence was. And he's saying, you are the sovereign God of the nations and of nature, but you're also right here with me. And don't we have that same comfort? we got the Holy Spirit inside of us, don't we? we got the power of God inside of us. How much further do we have to look? We need to acknowledge that. So it not only honors God the way he starts that prayer, but that helps him get perspective on things. Because all he's been hearing is about what this other guy's doing and how big and bad he is and the multitude, the host. Your God won't do this. You're being deceived. Forget all that. God, you've created heaven and earth. And all the nations, you control it all. And not only that, you're here with me right now, dwelling between those cherubim because we've cleaned this house up. Clean your house up. You can know God's with you in that way. And he'll give you what you need. 
So we need to recognize and magnify the greatness of God to begin our prayers. Puts things in perspective. And then next he asks God, look, listen to what he's saying. Look at this, look at this letter he's written here. Listen and see the reproach he's given, not just anyone, not just these gods with a little g, but the living God. Look in verse 16. He says, Lord, bow down your ear and hear. Open, Lord, your eyes and look. Here are the words of Sennacherib, which he had sent to reproach who? The living God. He's saying this guy thinks he's reviling a God that doesn't exist, but he's speaking to you, Lord, the living God that's created all things, including him. Who does he think he is? Who does this problem think it is to say that God can't deal with it? Whatever your problem is, right? And that sounds a lot like David. Isn't that what David did? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies, not any army, the armies of the living God? Our God is alive, isn't he? And if he's alive, that means he's able to help us instead of a dead God. He really is. What's that song, The Lord Liveth and Blessed Be My Rock? We sing. Oh, I love that part of that song. But here, faith doesn't deny reality, though. It really doesn't. Because look in verses 17 to 18. Sorry, Rick. Y'all with me? We're just about done. 17 and 18, he prays this, Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria, of a truth. He doesn't deny the reality. The kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations and their lands and have cast out their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. He doesn't deny that what they've said they've done, they've really done. You can't deny that, right? And faith does not deny reality. Look, if you've got cancer, you can't deny you've got cancer. You can't. If you've got pain inside, like they say, you've got inside information. To try to act like it's not there is called Christian science. To deny that what you're looking at, well, that's not really, that's not cancer on my arm. That's not pain inside that I'm feeling. I'm, it's just my thoughts are wrong. No, you, you, you're hurting. You're looking at cancer. You're broke. you got a withered arm. You can't deny it. You're lonely. You have to battle lust. It doesn't ever say to deny the reality of what you're looking at, does it? You know, Bemington used to say this, he, he, and this really helped me out in faith early on. You all, you young people, anyone, you need to read Bevington. It's good reading. Thomas, you've read it several times, haven't you? It's good reading. Get the book. You can get it on Amazon. I'll buy you a copy. Gladly. Well, listen, here's what Bevington said. He, he got all confused about, you know, am I supposed to deny the reality of what I'm feeling? I'm sick and all that. And he said the Lord finally showed him. Look, we don't have to pray and fast like he did to get this answer. He gave it to us. He says you can't deny the reality of your circumstances, but you can deny the devil to right to keep them on you. That's what we can deny. So it's true. The nations didn't have... A person, none of them stood up to Sennacherib, but they did not have the living God. And it's true that cancer and heart conditions kill most, but most don't have the living God, right? And it's true that lust dominates the lives of most American males and probably females, but most don't have the living God, do they? And it's true that a lot of people never seem to get answers to prayer, but they aren't trusting in the living God. We've got a message here that should set us free, right? 
God is faithful. So the last thing we see here in his prayer, the last part of his prayer, verse 19, he says, God will answer to spread his glory. Now, therefore, O Lord, I beseech thee, save us now out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, even thou only. And listen, that's the way God is. He is zealous for his glory, and we should be too. He's also concerned about us as his children. So he's not unconcerned that you have pain, a problem, a wrecked marriage, whatever it is. He's not unconcerned about that. Because when he looked down upon the children of Israel, it said he was afflicted with their affliction. Right? And he says, I am going to come and deliver them out of that. That hurts me like it's hurting them. Afflicted. But what did he say? When he delivered them out of them, what was the reason he did that? So that his glory would go throughout all the earth. Going through that Red Sea and defeating the great. It's both, isn't it? It's not either or. So God does care about us, and he cares about his glory. He deserves to have it. We should be glad to give it to him, too. And that's what should happen when, hey, we've taken our stand. God's changed our circumstances, right? And our praise should go up to him, shouldn't it? Give him the glory. My God has done this. But, hey, we got to be consecrated, don't we, to get to that point. And we have to take our stand and withstand all the mind battles, all the things people are saying to us to try to talk us out of our faith. Hey, did God answer? Did you think God heard a prayer like that? Look in verse 20. It says, Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, That which thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. Now, that is the second time that the prophet Isaiah has come to Hezekiah and said, Thus saith the Lord. The second time. I mean, man, I'd just like to see Isaiah, let alone have him come and tell me one of my prayers was answered. I mean, the first time I think would settle it, but I don't know. Because Hezekiah was a man of faith and it didn't settle it for him. Now look, we should not be sign seekers, should we? We shouldn't. But God will encourage us our faith. He'll encourage us that our prayers have been answered. He may send a prophet. I, I had that happen one time. I had a thing I'd prayed about. This is back in Columbus years ago. Is really troubling me inside. I was holding on to the Lord, and a guy had a prophecy that it's like is exactly my situation. I, no one knew about it. He gave that prophecy, and I am just like I am rejoicing about that. I said, God, that is a clear answer to help me out and encourage me on my faith. Next thing you know, he taps me on the shoulder. That guy that prophesied, he said, Brother, it was a black, he, brother. I wanted to let you know that what you're believing for, God says you have it. I'm like, Wow. I'm like, I couldn't believe it. I'll be asking, I wish somebody here would do that for me, but that was a, and God will do that at times, or he can send an angel, can he? I mean, I'm not going to fall out of my chair if somebody gives a testimony that God sent an angel to confirm something, but I think the more common way is going to be Philippians 4, 6 to 7, which is to be anxious for nothing, but by everything in prayer, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And it says then that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind through Christ Jesus. He'll give you, that should be a common experience in this church that we have claimed. And it's just not like, well, I claimed, I hope it's going to work. But that God has given you that assurance and peace in your heart that you know all things are going to work out. And listen, sometimes you've got to battle and intercede to get to that point, don't you? That's not the same as praying a dozen times, but sometimes there's a little warfare going on there, isn't it? Read Bevington, you'll find out. 
And God can give you that peace where you know, hey, it's done. I don't need to worry about this. It's finished. And that should be an experience here that's common. It really should be. We ought to be people that are walking with God and know that he is hearing us. So did it work for Hezekiah? Look at 19, look in verse 35. It says this. And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out, smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it came to pass as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, what a name, his god, and that Adremelech and Sharazar, his son, smote him with the sword and they escaped into the land of Armenia. I'd say it worked, wouldn't you? I'd say God is faithful right there, wouldn't you? It did not look good, and God delivered him. So will it work for you? It says, hey, Second Chronicles 16, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of those whose heart is perfect towards him. So just to recap, what we need to remember is we've got to remember our, our consecration and dedication is vital to faith, right? We've, like Hezekiah, we've got to make sure we've got clean hearts before the Lord so that the power of God can flow to us. And the second thing we talked about is when you take a stand for the Lord, expect it to be challenged by your family, friends, enemies, and I hate to say this, but well-meaning Christians. And then the question you're going to have to answer when those circumstances come is, now on whom do you trust? said Hezekiah had the greatest faith of any king in Israel, and because he trusted in the Lord God of Israel. Do you? And his faith was great, not because he denied the circumstances he saw, but because he trusted that God would keep his word and change his circumstances to resemble what God had promised. That's what we're trusting in. So when the situation looks hopeless, that's the time to take your case before the Lord in prayer. Remember who God is, the sovereign God of the universe. Remind him how the devil is trying, nothing wrong with this, remind him how the devil is trying to get you to doubt his faithfulness and love to you. Remind him that the devil's blaspheming his name by saying he won't help you. Remind him of that, that he's trying to deny there's a living God that answers prayers. Because that's what he's telling you in your ear. And then know that God, we just read it, he hears the cries of his people. And we can be on the support of his word knowing he'll come through for us, won't he? He will. Therefore, be of good cheer. For we believe God, don't we? That it shall be even as it was told us. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Sorry, I went a little long there. but Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for the words you've given us tonight. And I just ask you, Lord, you'll speak to all of us in ways that we need to consecrate and dedicate our hearts to you, that we can have clean hearts, Lord, that that channel can be opened. And I just ask you, Lord, that you'll cause us all to pray and seek your face so that we can have the strength by your grace and your spirit to stand up against the challenges that will come against our faith. And they're sure to come. We just ask you, Lord, to be with us and strengthen us in that way. And that then we can come and pray before you, acknowledge who you are, and look to you for our deliverance, just like Hezekiah did. And we just ask that you'll put that all in all of our hearts. And we just thank you for this time tonight. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody want to stand up? Probably should have had you stand up after the first half hour, huh? <laughs> stand up, take a break, smoke a cigarette, and come back and we'll finish up, yeah? <laughs> All right. All right. Well, everybody just shake somebody's hand and greet one another and you're dismissed in Jesus' name. Amen.